Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, we'll be looking at chapter 23 this morning. Genesis 23 is our text. Last time we saw Abraham believe and fear and obey God even more than the natural affection for the life of his own son. And in this testing, God showed forth how his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, would offer an offering that would take away the sin of the world. As it's written in Ephesians 4, 2, Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what Jesus did willingly. That picture of what Abraham was called to do with his son on Mount Moriah, Jesus did outside the camp in that same general region He did it for real. As Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You know, we're promised sanctification once we believe that we are made more and more like Christ. But all of the merit, all of the righteousness for that has already been accomplished in Jesus Christ's perfect life and in his atoning death. He offered to God the sacrifice by which we are being sanctified, by which we will be perfected in the sight of God. And we are already that by faith right now in his eyes. And so God gave for salvation what he never required of any man, even in the foreshadowing it, he gave the life of his son. Moreover, Jesus did not die the the quick death that Isaac would have died, the cutting of the throat. Nor did he know what Isaac knew, an honored life, recognized as the heir to his father's throne. No, by design, the Lord of all glory and honor and wisdom and power and might and grace and mercy and love was born in poverty and obscurity, was reviled and despised, hunted as a child, having to flee the country, opposed and slandered throughout his ministry, betrayed by one of his own, rejected, beaten, spat upon, Falsely accused, convicted, and then publicly and obscenely over hours, agonizingly killed. And beloved, we haven't even considered that he bore the wrath of God. Which would make all of these instances of human suffering seem like a day at the beach. That's what Jesus underwent for us. And so today's text, having seen that in a picture in Isaac, today's text is a little anticlimactic, I grant you. But it's important because we live in the light of Calvary. We live post-Calvary and we still have to live for God. And there's meaning and purpose in that. And that's what chapter 23 is about. Abraham has performed the greatest test of his life. He has seen the day of Christ far off by faith. But he's still got to live in a world that's not his. That's ultimately ruled by the God of this world, Satan. Though under the authority and And a permission that God gives him. That's where we are, beloved. And so this text is important for us. How do we live in the light of the certain salvation that we have in Jesus Christ in day-to-day things? Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this life. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. You have paid and purchased our salvation. And now we get to glorify you by living in a way that would show your light. Help us to do that, Lord, and see the glory in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now, the word of the Lord from Genesis 23. This is God's holy and perfect word. 
Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead, and he spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner. And a visitor among you, give me property for a burial place among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Then Abraham stood up. And bowed himself to the people of the land, to the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within the surrounding borders, they were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city, And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as a property for a burial place. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning. What an unusual text. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, sorrow resides in this world. Sorrow resides in this world. Did you know that Sarah is the only woman in Scripture whose age and burial and death are mentioned? Sarah is very important in Scripture. We know that she and Abraham were married in Ur of the Chaldees before they left. We know she was 65 when she entered Canaan. 
Because Abraham was 75 and she was 10 years younger than him. We find all that out later. And therefore she lived 62 years in the land of Canaan, married to Abraham. And she dies at 127. And we don't know why. We're not told how. That was young for her day. Abraham, her husband, lives to be 175. Their son, 180. Even Isaac, or even Jacob, I believe, lives to be 149 or something like that. So 127, maybe something happened. Maybe she had a heart attack and died suddenly. Whatever the case may be, it says that Abraham goes uh, to Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. We get a little geographical information here. So Hebron is a city in Israel, okay, and it's in the southeast, and you can see the Dead Sea Valley from there. And it was called Mamre. When Abraham lived there, it was Mamre. And remember, he moves away from there. He moved to Mamre in Genesis 13 after he came out of Egypt, and he lived there for a, for a while. And then he moves away from there after Sodom and Gomorrah because it's about 20 miles away, and maybe the sulfur in the air, it says the whole area abandoned that place for a while. And it's been 20-some years or so from the end of 22 to 23. So for 20-some years at least, Abraham lived in Beersheba, which is way over on the west, southwest of Israel, far removed from the Dead Sea Valley. But now Abraham has gone back. To Mamre, which is Hebron, which is also Kiriath Arba. It was Kiriath Arba after Mamre. We're told that in the book of Joshua. And Kiriath just means city of. You notice um, Judas is Kiriath. Kiriath. Judas uh, is from the uh, uh, city here, uh, probably from Hebron. Judas is a man of Kiriath. And his father was Simon Iscariot. So Kiriath Arba goes back to Arba being the father of the Anakim. And he, the Anakim, remember the giants, would have come into this area after Abraham and the, and the patriarchs are gone. And so the Anakim lived there. And that's what happens when Israel takes the land 400 years later under Joshua. So that gives you the idea. So this city was Mamre, then Kiriath Arba, then Hebron. And that just goes to show you that things change, right? The people change. They're the sons of Heth, the Hittites. It'll be the Anakim by the time Israel comes back. Cities change. Places change. Names change. And our families change. And Abraham's family has changed greatly because he lost his wife. And I'm sure the house never felt the same. I know when my father died, I felt that every time I went to my mom's house, something was missing. That shouldn't be missing because death is the enemy. It's not a part of life. It's not the circle of life like Disney tells you. This friend at the door, right? Death. Death is the enemy. Death will be thrown into hell by Jesus Christ at the end of the book of Revelation. Never to take anyone. Again, we should mourn death. This world is a world of mourning, it's a veil of tears. Psalm 84, 6, actually, 84, verse 6, actually translates the veil of tears in some of the English versions. It's talking about this world. This world is a time to mourn, as Solomon wrote. There is time to mourn, and it's in this world, because in the next world, we won't. He'll wipe away every tear. This is the time to mourn, and I want to just emphasize that, because notice in our text, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And oftentimes, unfortunately, in Christian circles, mourning is somehow, or weeping is somehow looked at as as weakness of faith. as something to be ashamed of. 
We have a ministry that we do periodically at this church, and it's a wonderful ministry. It's called Grief Share. And it, it really helps Christians to mourn in a godly way. And it's a part of life. It's something that we need to do. It's how we glorify God. And yet, again, often we're ashamed. Oh, I must not have faith because I'm supposed to be happy all the time because, you know, I have heaven promised to me. And, and I, I've known Christians like that. I'm sure you've known them, right? They just feel like they have to always be smiling and always say everything is awesome and smiling. And, and somehow if they don't, they don't have faith. That's not the, the, the real life that we talk about. You know, I like to talk about our church. Re- Reformed doctrine, reverent worship, real life. Not fake life, not pretend life. Not nothing ever hurts me because, you know, I'm in Jesus and everything's awesome and perfect. No, Christians suffer. Christians get sick. Christians die. And the mother of the faithful dies. And Abraham went to mourn and to weep for her. It's not unusual and it's not ungodly to mourn and to weep or to feel sorrow or to even feel despair. Second Corinthians 1 8, Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, bro- uh, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Listen to this. Because we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's the man who wrote half the New Testament. We despaired of life itself. I don't know how sorrowful it is to despair of life itself. I've never had to experience that yet. To actually long for death. Paul's not the only one. 1 Kings 19.4. Elijah asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, O Lord. Now take, him, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Perhaps the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah, you know, the one who will come again before Jesus returns. And he did in the person of John the Baptist. How important was Elijah? At one time he prayed for death. It's not unusual. We ought not to be ashamed to mourn. Abram was not ashamed to mourn. Scripture emphasizes it. He came to mourn for Sarah. Yea, he came to weep for her. Of course, the ultimate example of It being good and right to mourn is our Lord Jesus Christ who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. When he saw the sorrow of Lazarus' family members, he was moved with compassion and he wept. As he also wept over Jerusalem when he contemplated the judgment of this wicked city. He didn't rejoice. Praise God the wicked are going to get it. He wept for them. He wept. The Geneva Bible of 1599 says natural affection is commendable. This is why the test was so difficult for Abraham. The natural affection for his son was there. It would have been easy for a monster father who hated his son. Sure, I'll sacrifice him. But Abraham loved his son. That's why it was so hard. John Calvin says, quote, To feel no sadness at the contemplation of death is rather barbarism and stupor than fortitude of mind. It's not fortitude. It's not strength. It's not strong faith that you don't ever feel sorrowful. It's barbarism or stupidity, Calvin says. Hardness of heart or denseness. Matthew Henry says it's not only lawful, but it is a duty to lament the death of our near relations, both in compliance with the providence of God, who thus calls us to weeping and mourning, and in honor to those whom honors do. Abraham honored his wife because he mourned for her and he wept for her 
And that's one of the commandments that we're given in the New Testament to honor our wives. And therefore, secondly, I want you to notice dignity belongs to mankind. Dignity belongs to mankind. Abraham honors his wife. And one of the ways he wants to honor her is to bury her, notice, out of my sight. The text keeps saying that. To, To bury my dead out of my sight, out of my sight. Why? Because death is the final humiliation. That's what it's been called. Death is the final humiliation. I've been there for the death of both of my parents and for many in this congregation at the moment of death. And it is a traumatic thing. Um, and it is, a, it is a reverent thing when it's a believer and the believer's family is there. But it's also, it's a, it's a humiliating thing. You can't close your eyes. The dead always have their eyes sort of half open. You can't close your mouth. And the mouth hangs open at the end. And the muscles of the face and nothing works. And as the person's life ebbs away and the breathing slows. And you can't hold off then after death the decay that comes and the dissolution of the body. And it would be be horrifying to see your loved ones decay. And then the, the, the vermin and the parasites come and feed upon them. And so the honorable thing to do is to bury the dead and get them out of our sight. That we don't see that shame upon this one whom we loved, whose soul is still alive. And the body belongs to the Lord. And so we honor the body by removing it out of our sight. We cover that shame, as it were. And death shows us spiritually to be subjects of God's judgment. That's another part of the humiliating thing of death. I think man inherently knows by the law of nature, by by the creature himself, from the creation, we know that we will live after death because we know there's a judgment coming. So we know that. Even the uh, Greek philosophers understood that. That man has to, there has to be justice. We know justice is coming. There's a judgment coming. So we know we're going to live after death. But death is part of the judgment of God on this world. And so death itself shows us to have been condemned. So it is all forms of weakness and sickness and disease. They're all forms of death that show us that we are under, as it were, the wrath of God. Remember, God cursed the ground when Adam and Eve fell. He didn't curse them. That's really important. But they suffered under the curse, and so do we. Thorns, thistles, ultimately death, and then ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And that is the judgment of God. And that's one of the reasons why the you know, so-called prosperity gospel and the health and wealth gospel take off, because people understand, well, wait a minute, if I'm a believer and if I'm a Christian, I should have life and I should have it abundantly and I should be delivered from death and I shouldn't experience affliction. And that's true in an ultimate sense, because that's what heaven will be. But until then, we are to bear up under these things and to suffer as our Lord suffers and to glorify God in our suffering. We don't experience God's judgment in that. We don't believe it's his judgment as Christians that we die. Jesus took his judgment. But we have to go through death to lose this sinful nature that stays dead. And then we get to go and be with the Lord. And so death has lost its sting. The grave has lost its victory over us. But we still pass through it. We still go through it. And this is why sometimes, again, Christians can and other people sometimes judge people, right? Bad things happen. This guy's sick. Oh, he got cancer. And you start to think. Did he do something, right? Because there are times in Scripture where God does kill somebody when he's upset. 
When he visits his anger upon them, his anger is always there, perfect. But uh, we are always in his love and grace, even though we can disappoint him and be chastened by him in that sense of grieving the spirit as the scriptures talk about. But what I want you to notice is that this is why Jesus was considered to be cursed by many of the Jews. Because he took our infirmities and he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Which is why he was esteemed stricken by God. And afflicted, well, he must be cursed of God. And that's what they said about him. He's, he's crucified. He must be cursed of God. Oh, look, he's whipped and he's humiliated. God must be doing this to him. And that's part of the humiliation of death. The angels don't experience death. Why? Because they don't sin. Death comes to sinners. Death says we're sinners. Do you see that? So spiritually, we, we have that But in Jesus Christ, what do we know? We know our sins are forgiven. We know we'll live forever. We right now enjoy eternal life in our spirits, in our minds, in our hearts. We'll go to be with the Lord when we die. But the body will be corrupted. Will decay and go to dust. And so we we honor our dead by burial. We honor our dead by removing them from our sight. We honor our dead by... You know, in their day, in their different customs, they put them in the side of a hill, a crypt. You know, because Israel is very rocky, so you can't just dig into the soft earth like you can here. So like Jesus was buried in the side of a hill, right? Because the stone was rolled away and you could walk into the, the crypt, the tomb, the sepulcher. And so also that's what Abraham wants to buy, a cave, right? We bury in the ground. And there are other ways, burial at sea, where they wrap the body up tight, where again, you can't see the body. And they weight it so that it sinks, so you're not, you don't see it floating on the surface or no one else does. You know, again, that, that honor to remove the body so that it can return to the dust without people seeing the decay and the corruption. Because we believe, again, that there's not, the person's not there anymore, right? That's one of the reasons why Christian graves have historically been very simple, very unornate. Because we don't believe that the, the person is there. You know, contrast that with Egypt where the Pharaoh would go in and, and his servants would be walled up alive in the tomb with him because he needs servants to cross over you know, the river and meet the king of the dead and become the uh, god in, of the dead world and all of that stuff and all those treasures and everything else that they put in there. Or the Vikings whose the wife was supposed to go on the ship when the, when the man was burned on the ship and she would die alive because you know, that was the way to do it. All this superstition that you see. I saw this, by the way, in Mexico when we were down in Mexico. When I first became a pastor of this church, we were doing some mission work in Ciudad Victoria. And I remember going past the cemeteries, and there were just like all sorts of things where people were putting toys and, and presents and, and even plates of food out for the dead on the tombstones, right? As if somehow that could be there. That's not what I mean by honoring and reverence. To the dead body. We don't do that with superstition and, you know, thinking that we can leave some food out for them or showering presents on the stone. The person is with the Lord, right? If they're a believer, they're with the Lord and their body we bury in the ground in order to show honor. And, I, and so I think we've got to be uh, careful of superstition on the one hand, but we don't want to like legislate things either or recognize there are different customs and there are different traditions, You know, um, it says here that, notice, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah. 
So they probably had her laid up somewhere. You could translate it went to mourn for her, wherever she was laid up. And they probably had some sort of burial practice and they probably had her wrapped or something like that. And then it says, and Abraham stood up so that he was on his face. He was on his knees. And and maybe that was part of the uh, custom and part of the tradition that they had. And they had those customs and traditions. By the way, when Jacob dies... Later in the book of Genesis, it says he's embalmed according to all the practices of the Egyptians. And it took 40 days to do that. Scripture says it took 40 days to do the embalming. And so that happens. And there's, you know, again, not to get all caught up in that. I know sometimes Christians worry about what they should or shouldn't do at a funeral. You know, if it's respectful to the dead body, if it's honoring to God, not some some weird superstition or bringing in some kind of spirits and stuff like that. Uh, then I think it's fine to go according to whatever tradition you want to do. Again, they submitted to having Jacob embalmed according to the way of the Egyptians. There wasn't anything wrong with that. But they didn't put any of the garbage idols in, in, in the tomb with Jacob either. And so we had that. And I know sometimes people have asked me, like, well, should I do the embalming for my loved one? Well, if you want to, that's up to you. I always tell people, well, what, what's comforting to you? What does your family want to do? You know, there's not some command in Scripture. This is the way to prepare the dead body. But what we want to do is treat it with respect. Return it to the dust with respect. Right? I would say that even with regard to cremation. I know that's happening more and more. And there are different reasons people are doing that. But you know what? That's just returning the body to the dust a lot faster. It's reducing ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And I'm not going to, you know, tell anybody that you can't do that. Um, I think that that's, a, again, the decision that Christians can make. There's at least one example in Scripture where they burned the dead bodies and it was done with honor and the commendation of the Word of God. And that's in 1 Samuel 31. When I preached through 1 Samuel, I mentioned this to you. 1 Samuel 31, 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, listen to this, verse 12, all the valiant men, not all the scoundrels, All the valiant men arose and they traveled all night and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. The Philistines had those bodies, again, to shame them. Chained to the wall, nailed to the wall, somehow to the wall of the city, outside wall, so everyone could see Philistia Philistia has defeated Israel. And the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead came all night. They took Saul, the body of Saul, and the bodies of his sons. Jonathan was there on that wall. And they took his sons from the wall of Bethshan. Listen, and they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And then it says that they buried what was left and they fasted and prayed. Scripture says that as an honor to these men. And when when David found out, he honored them. They burned them and they buried them. So, you know, I, I, I don't like creating new legalism, new laws. This is the way you have to take care of the dead. If it's respectful, if it's a comfort to your family, if it's treating the body in a way that it can decompose back, you know, whether you use a vault, whether you use this new way they're doing it with the simplistic, uh, you know, pine boxes or whatever, you need special cemeteries to do that. Whether you choose cremation, do it in a way that's respectful and that honors and and really uh, uh, honor um, your loved one. Thirdly, I want you to notice courtesy accords with human society. I want you to notice the courtesy accords with human society. So we see Abraham burying his dead in this 
chapter that, by the way, the critics love. I mean, scholars, not so much critics, but scholars and academics and historians, they love this chapter because there are so many really interesting details about how the world worked back then. You know, this is 2000 BC. We have other ancient Hittite records that we can compare to and some other ancient records here and there, maybe some Egyptian. Dating is always, you know, do they have the dates right? I I don't put a lot of stock in a lot of their dating. But still, um, this chapter is fascinating, right? For one thing, this is clearly an oral culture. This is clearly a, a ceremony where there's no contracts written up at all. That's why the witnesses are so important. And the, everything is done in front of the witnesses at the city gate. There's no written record. Later on, Scripture talks about where they draw up contracts in the book of Jeremiah, where he's supposed to write down what they did. That's not happening at this early stage. Also, we see verse 3, the sons of Heth. That's mentioned over and over again. Heth was a descendant, a, a son of Canaan. And so here are the Canaanites. Right, The Hittites uh, are from them as well. And so we see them doing business in the city gate, verse 10. So the Hittites were the northern kingdom up in modern-day Turkey. But they came down into Israel and would fight the Egyptians. And Egypt was the world power. But the Hittite kingdom was the second at this this time. And so the Hittites are in Israel. We know that, even though that that was disputed before. We've seen uh, all sorts of things at this time, Hittites in Israel. And so they have control of some of these cities. And we see here, Abram wants to buy the cave. Do you know that? Notice that. He wants to buy the cave, it says, in verse uh, 8 and 9. That he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. But notice when Ephron shows up. Now, Abraham doesn't know who Ephron is. He doesn't recognize that he's there. He knows him by name. By the way, he may be, he may be the ruler of this city. Because he calls it his city in verse 10. And then twice... Uh, my, or my people in verse 11, and then again, his city in verse 18. So it's Ephron's city, Ephron's city. So maybe that's how a- a- Abram says, you know, if you would meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, you know, you, you elders of the city go to your ruler, Ephron, the son of Zohar. Abram doesn't know he's there. He doesn't recognize him, that he may give me the cave and so forth. And so all of this interesting, fascinating uh, uh, details about how they did things. And Abraham wants the cave. But notice what Ephron says when he comes. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave. Now, you say, oh, wow, that's really generous of him. And maybe it was. Maybe he was being generous. But we know from Hittite records that when you owned the field, you got to pay the duty. If you just owned a cave on the field, you don't. So Ephron's saying here, um, you're going you're to get the whole thing, but you're going to pay the price for it. And that's why the price is so exorbitant, as we'll notice in a moment. So just a kind of an interesting thing. And how Abram doesn't contest the price. Ordinarily here, this is when the bargaining would stop. Abram doesn't. He wants to pay, Abraham wants to pay the full price. And we'll come back to that. Um, and that God has, um, God has clearly blessed him. God has clearly made his name great. Do you see that in verses 5 and 6? Hear us, my Lord. By the way, three times Abraham is called Lord. Twice by Ephron. Once here by the sons of... Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. God said, I'll make your name great. Abram's name is great in this land. Remember I said, you know, 20 years earlier, he's over there in Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol want to come out and make this treaty with this great chieftain. He defeated four kings. Abram is... A great man. He's a man of wealth. We see this later where Ephron will say to him in verse 15, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels. What's that to you and me? I'm the king. You're this great wealthy chieftain. 400 shekels. 
Clearly, Abraham is powerful. Abraham is great. Abraham has been blessed. And yet I want you to see how humble Abraham is to these people. Remember who these people are. They're Hittites. They're one of the groups that God said he would give over to Abraham. That Abraham would possess the land from the Hittites. He mentions them specifically in Genesis 15. To your descendants I have given this land. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites. By the way, our pastor Cadman always liked the Cadmonites. The Hittites, the Perizzites, and and the Rephaim. The Hittites. They're named. I'm giving you their land. What does Abraham say when he's in the presence of Hittites? Hittite cities? Verse 4. I am a foreigner. I'm not a native. You're natives. I'm a foreigner and a sojourner. Visitor, sojourner, stranger. Abraham calls himself in the land that God says is yours. To the people that God said that Abraham will get it from. He calls them the owners. Why? Because God hasn't given it to them yet. Again, God has promised us the heavens and the earth. All things are yours, Paul says. We should go down and march on Washington, right? It's ours. No, we should bow down before Washington. I mean, when they comply with the law, we don't want to go crazy. We have rights. Abraham has rights. But still, no, there's a respect here. Notice how he bows. The only person that bows in this text is Abraham. The son of God. The progenitor of the Messiah. He bows to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. It even says it. The sons of Heth. Canaan's son Heth. These are their children. Under the curse, Abram bows himself to the people of the land. Verse 7, again in verse 12, Abram bows himself down before the people of the land. People of the land. That's almost always pagans. The people of the land. Abraham's a sojourner in the land. He's a stranger in the land, even though it's his. In this life, he understood. He was a foreigner. He was a stranger. This is really, really important. And again, he's honored I think he's honored because he humbles himself. Because he doesn't act arrogant. Because he makes himself someone who who respects the the decent traditions and customs. He's at the city gate doing, doing business the right way. Bowing himself down. He's respecting the people. And showing personal humility. You know, I've been asked, and I've wondered this before. Why is the reformed Faith. Why are Reformed Christians like the smallest group of Christians in the world? You know, I've often wondered that. I mean, I believe we have the best doctrine, the right understanding of Scripture, the way in which we can take all of Scripture and put it together and show how, according to what God meant for it to understand, and the Reformed Fathers have done that, and the Reformed Creeds have done that, and Reformed churches live that out, apply doctrine rightly to people's lives. So many other denominations and churches and Christian groups I see messing up Scripture, doing things wrong, and causing difficulties because of that. And yet here we are. When I was at seminary, the PCA was... 10% of the PCUSA. I don't know what it is now. It's probably a little higher. But I guarantee you PCUSA is still way bigger than us. So we were one-tenth the mainline. Oh, and at the time, the Baptists were ten times as big as the mainline Presbyterian church. So we were one-hundredth of the Baptists. And oh, by the way, the Catholic church was two or three times bigger than the Baptists. So I don't even know what that works out on there. And if you take all of the Reformed denominations, and there's 300,000 PCA members, and we're more than double all the rest put together. If you take all of that, we're, I don't know, 
one-tenth of one percent of the people of the country? Why? We have it all right. It doesn't make sense. I used to think that when I'd walk in the seminary at little tiny RPTS library, I'd go down our, you know, I'd go to the library and just a few uh, stacks that we had. Never had the books I wanted, usually. Then I'd go to PTS library. And, I, you know, it'd be like at Penn State. You'd get lost in the mainline library, you know, the nominations library down the road in Pittsburgh. And I'd think, why do they have so much, Lord, and we have so little? Why do you keep giving your servants who are faithful so little? And if I wonder, I wonder if it's not. That so oftentimes I meet in reform circles, in reform communities, just this contempt for the world, this pride that people show, arrogance. You know, we call it the cage stage, right, of Calvinism, where they're just blasting everybody around them. That's not good. That's not acceptable. You know, like the rebellious stage of the teenager. You know, we're good on that. That's not acceptable. We shouldn't accept that teenagers are going to rebel. We shouldn't accept that Calvinists are going to be offensive to everybody they meet. We should not accept that. That is not acceptable. That's not right. We should be the most humble of Christians if we really understand our doctrine. I mean, we're superior in doctrine, I think, to everyone else, which puts us a far second to Satan in an accurate doctrine. Let's just consider what it all means. Abraham's humility throughout these chapters have just blown me away. His humil- he doesn't compromise with the world. He does not. But boy, does he humble himself. Boy, does he show himself to be one who humbles himself, who is a servant to all. You know, I thank God I have my foot in a couple of other Christian traditions, and I have some respect in some of these other places, in some non-denominational groups. There are pastors who know me and respect me. In charismatic circles, in Pentecostal circles, I work with some pastors, and they know me and respect me. In some inner-city black churches, I am known and respected. And that humbles the daylights out of me, that they would let me come in and, and let me speak, and they would actually listen to what I say. And I honor those people. And a lot of them have more godliness in their little finger than, than I have. And I see that. And I see God at work in other people. And, then, and these are fellow believers. It ought to be easy for us to show respect and humility to fellow believers. But so often, that's who we're attacking most of the time, isn't it? It drives me nuts when I see like, you know, guys constantly going after other evangelical Bible-believing traditions. When are they ever going to go after the world? When do they ever talk about getting people saved for Jesus? Believing in Jesus, repenting. And I get with, when I get with my Pentecostal friends, that's all they talk about. We need to get people saved. We need to get people to believe in Jesus. What are we doing? Those stupid Baptists. They don't know what they're doing. Look at those Pentecostals. The dummies. That's what we do. I wonder if that's not why we're one-tenth of one percent. Abraham was humble and he was honored. And he was called a great chieftain because he humbled himself. Jesus says, those who humbled, I will exalt. Those who humble themselves, I will exalt. Those who exalt themselves, I will humble. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to pray. We need to have the courtesy and the humility that Abraham had. Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice death's victory is only temporary. Death's victory is only temporary. Why do we give so much ink to a cemetery purchase? A whole chapter. 
Is it that important to see, okay, Abraham honors people. He's a humble servant, respectful. He, you know, he, he uh, honors uh, courtesy and, and so forth. Goes through this little thing with the Ephron. Refuses to do anything less than pay full price. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to question that he got this land anyway by swindling, by bargaining, that he has it legitimately. Why is it so important? You know, you get to the end of this chapter, and we have to get everything repeated again, verse 17 to 20. I mean, so you get this whole ceremony. He's trying to buy some land, bury Sarah in, okay. And then in verse 17, it's reiterated, in case we missed it. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cane that was in it, and all the trees, mind you. Don't forget about the trees which were in the surrounding borders, they were deeded to Abraham's possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in the gate of the city. By the way, people of the land, gate of the city, sons of Heth, 12 times in this text. You know why? Because they're witnesses to an official contract and witnesses are important. And when you bear witness, you make a statement. I know it's come up recently about Christians going to to gay weddings and some want to say that that's a loving thing to do. And you're trying to show love. And I, I, and I heard the argument. You know, you want to show love until you go and you give them a present. Let me ask you. Let's just put it in perspective. If you had a loved one who was joining the mafia. And there was a ceremony that your loved one is going to become an organized criminal officially. And there's a party afterwards. Is it loving to go to that ceremony with a present? And say to them, you know, personally, I disagree with organized crime, but I just want to show you that I love you. Here's a present. Congratulations on becoming a professional criminal. Is that legitimate? You know that homosexual marriage is a crime, don't you? In the eyes of God, it's a capital crime. It's called an abomination. Is it good to do that? Is it loving? What if, what if they were going to declare that they're living as a rapist? And they're going to have an official rapist ceremony with a present to give afterwards. And you go and say, you know what, I personally am against that. But I just want to show you how much I love you. Here's a present. Congratulations on becoming an official violator of people. How can we do that? That's not what Abraham does. This is a legitimate sale of land that he buys. And he buys it at full price. To put it in perspective... In Genesis 33, when Shechem buys a larger track, I'm sorry, when Jacob buys a larger track of land in Shechem, he only pays 100 shekels of silver. Oh, Ephron, Ephron got Abram here. He's, he's figuring, oh, I'll throw out a crazy number and maybe, maybe I'll get 200 out of him or 150. 400. Here it is. Abram wants everyone to know that it's his land. And Abraham is buried in that cave and Sarah is buried in that cave and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. And it's the only land that Abraham owns of the promised land his whole day. Why does he do it? Because he believed in a God who will raise the dead. The only way this makes sense. Abraham wants to buy and be buried in the promised land because God has given him this land. And someday, some way, somehow, he's going to enjoy it. And so he's going to be buried there. And he's going to bury his wife there. Abraham believed in life after death. And he showed that by purchasing this land, beloved, even though he recognized in his life he was a sojourner and a foreigner, he knew the land would be his one day. 
Hebrews 11 says of Abraham and Sarah and the, and the patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off and they were assured of them, they embraced them, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Because those who say such things plainly say they de- plainly declare they seek a homeland. And if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But they desire a better that is a heavenly country. That had to be his hope. That there would be Somehow a heavenly giving of this country. Abraham, in as little light and revelation as he had, believed in a resurrection. Believed in a new heavens and a new earth. And he wanted to be buried in the promised lands. You know, beloved, we live, and we're sons of God, right? We, we are, the, the church is the manifestation of the kingdom of God on the earth. Don't ever think it's the fullness. It's the, it's the outpost here in this world in much obscurity because the world doesn't recognize it. They don't recognize that the kingdom of God is us. And they certainly don't recognize and honor our king, though he is king. But we are the kings and the priests of this world. It's not recognized. It's not honors, honored. So as Francis Schaeffer says, how then shall we live? Humbly, honorably, with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love and respect to others. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for your goodness. How we thank you for the, the godly and really humbling example of Abraham. He is the great father of the faithful, and yet he bows down to the sons of Canaan who were under your curse because you hadn't brought it about yet. And he recognized that they were made in your image. And so they deserved respect, and they deserved dignity, and they deserved even service and payment. And your servant did all those things. Because his faith was in you. And until you moved, he was going to live by loving his neighbor, by loving his enemy. Lord, help us to do that. Help us not to compromise with the world, but help us not to hate and condemn the world. Help us to rather pray for and ask that you would save the world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.